Okay, we're going to start here on the top of Lamed Heyom and Aleph. We ended off yesterday with the Gemara, with the Machloket about the duration of Benesh Mashot. And we had Amar Rabbah, Amar Rabbi Yehuda that it's Shlosha Chelke Mil, that it's three parts of a meal, three quarters of a meal is the duration of Benesh Mashot. And then we have Rav Yosef, Amar Yehuda Amar Shmuel, that it's Shnei Chelke Mil, which was two-thirds of a meal. So that was the Machloket, and then the Gemara jumps over to another sugya, which we're going to do in a second. The question that's raised over here is that there is another Gemara that's found in Psachim. And the Gemara in Psachim says on Daf Tzadi Dalet Amar Aleph that the duration of Benesh Mashot is actually four meal. So now you have a problem here. It says three quarters of a meal. There it says four meal. No problem. It's two opinions. The problem is that they're both authored by Rav Yudah. So now we have a stero in Rav Yudah that says one place it says four meal, and the other place it says three quarters of a meal. From that derives the very famous shita of the Rabbeinu Tam. The Rabbeinu Tam says, how do I reconcile between these two gmarot? So actually three ways to deal with it, and that actually results in the three different shitot about how we deal with sunset and seita kochavim. The Rabbeinu Tam shita, the most famous, under the name of the Rabbeinu Tam, but it was followed by all of Rishonei Ashkenaz. Ramban is one of the big promoters of the shita of the Rabbeinu Tam, as well as Rashi. Rashi seems to in some way not fully, but subscribe to what the Rabbeinu Tam is saying, which is that, as we mentioned yesterday, when we talk about Benesh Mashor, we talk about the end of the day, what determines what's the end of the day? Is it the sun leaving the horizon? That's the end of the day. Or is it the cessation of light? And the horizon, that's what's the end of the day. So what the Rabbeinu Tam basically describes is that there are actually two shkiot, there are two sunsets. There's a sunset when the sun leaves the horizon, and there's a second sunset when basically all the light is disappearing from the horizon. According to the Rabbeinu Tam, it's caused by the issue that we described yesterday, which is there's a dome over the earth, a kippah. The sun goes through what's called a chalon. It's become important again later in today's daf. goes through a window through the chalon on the western side. It traverses the entire kippah, the dome, exits the other side of the dome, and then the sun returns to the eastern side over the top of the dome, and then to rise again in the morning by penetrating through the chalon, the window on the other side. And we obviously know that that's not the reality, but that's what causes the sheet of Rabbeinu Tam to come about. In a second, I'll explain why it's still true today, even though Rabbeinu Tam is not correct in the understanding of the constellations and what's happening with the sun. But what the Rabbeinu Tam says, basically, is that there's something called Tchilat HaShkiah and Sof or he gives other terms to it in other places in Shas, in Menachot, in other places about whether it's Mishkiah or Shkiah. There are different terminologies that he uses that the Gemara is using to describe it. And he claims that the first Shkiah is when the sun leaves the horizon. From the time that the sun leaves the horizon until Tzaita Kochavim, that is four mil. A mil is approximately 18 minutes. So if you take 18 minutes times four, you end up with 72 minutes. So that's the 72 minutes of the Rabbeinu Tam. Rabbeinu Tam says from the time that the sun leaves the horizon, what we call Shkiah, until Tzaytok Ochavim, that is four meal, 72 minutes. What about the three-quarter meal that we're speaking about over here? The three-quarter meal that we're speaking about over here is the tail end of that four meal. So you have three and a quarter meal where, according to Rabbeinu Tam, the sun sets, but there's still light in the horizon. The tail end of that, the last three-quarters of a meal, which is approximately 13 and a half minutes, that is Benesh Mashot. Benesh Mashot where the light is leaving the horizon and before you hit the three stars, before you hit Seita Kochavin. So according to Rabbeinu Tam, it's still daytime until... That second Shkiah. And that's the way the Shulchan Aruch Paskins, the way the Ramah Paskins, everybody Paskins, 
that the end of the day is actually 58 and a half minutes after what we call sunset. That is still called daytime. And that's the practice today amongst the Hasidim, many of those that still follow the Rabbeinu Tam, they dive mincha even after Shkia, because according to them, it's still daytime. There are those that wrote that, in general, the Rishonim only used it, the Chumrah, not the Kula, and that was a much later development. The Bach himself goes wild about this, that he says, I never heard of this, that people are not starting Shabbat. They go out to the marketplaces, and they're doing business, and they don't start Shabbat until that later time of their Benutan. He says, we never heard of that in our lifetime. That Until that time, it was only done the Chumrah, which was... But the way the Ramah Paskins of the verse of Gabay Shabbat. Shabbat starts by Shkia and ends like Rabbeinu Tam 72 minutes later. So we Shneid Stadim the Chumra, which is that we say when the sun really sets on the horizon, that's it. We wait to the exit of Shabbat until the 72 minutes of the Rabbeinu Tam. But there are those, and the practice amongst the Hasidim today, that they, even the Kula, they did it time in the Bach, he starts to cry about this, that people are doing this. But it seems to come, it's a widespread minhag. I think there might be proof to it in Rashi and Brachot. He also thinks that it doesn't start until that later Shkia. But basically, what you have here is that the day does not end until the second Shkia. The Gemara is describing it as Shkia is just when the sun leaves the horizon. That doesn't have halakhic implications. The halakhic implications are the second Shkia, which is 15 Eight. and a half minutes later, three and a quarter meal later. Then the last three quarter meal that we're speaking about here are the tail end of the 72 minutes. And that's Benesh Mashot according to the Rabbeinu Tam. That's how the Rabbeinu Tam reconciles between the four meal in Sachim and the three quarter meal over here. There's another shita of the Ureim. The Ureim actually solves the problem in a similar way to Rabbeinu Tam, but he actually says that the three quarter meal actually starts before the sun actually sets on the horizon. The three quarter meal ends with the sunset leaving the horizon. So he has the same four meal as Rabbeinu Tam, but his starting point is later. And that's to do when the sun reaches Rosh Ha'ilanot. It reaches the top of the trees. And he calls that sunset. That's the first sunset, basically. When if you're standing and the trees are there, the sun goes below the tops of the trees. That's sunset number one. Three quarters of a meal. Thirteen. Five minutes later, it's going to leave the horizon, the sun. And that'll be the second sunset. That's the three-quarter meal. And then the four meal is the time counted from the beginning until when it gets dark outside. So for the Uraim, sunset actually happens prior to what we call sunset today. Part of the reason why we light candles prior to Shkia, 18 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever the minhag is, is to incorporate the sheet of the Uraim. Is to deal with this Uraim. Because if we were to light candles close to Shkia or five minutes before Shkia, according to the Uraim, it's already Shabbat. It's already past this Shkia. So in order to incorporate this Uraim, we light earlier than that to have Tosebit Shabbat on the Uraim and also to incorporate his Shita in case he's right. We actually light beforehand. The third Shita is the Shita of the Gra. The Gra, who believes there's a Gemara, which we spoke about on Dav Beramud Bet in the Gemara and Brachot, which seems to indicate that the Benesh Mashot here is determined by the three-quarter meal. Three-quarter meal is Benesh Mashot. means from the time the sun leaves the horizon, three-quarter of a meal later, 13, one and a half minutes later, most 16 minutes, 17 minutes, depending where you are, that is the end of Benesh Mashot, and that's Seita Kochavim according to the Gra. Now, that's the power of the Gra, despite the fact that the Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah passed in like their Beinu Tam, all of Rishonai Ashkenaz, the Ramban, sees a very, very strong support for this position of the Beinu Tam. In the end, we passed in like the Gra. And that's the power of the Gra, that sometimes, even against the Ramah, that we pass in like the Gra, that Shkia is the end of the day. And then, in Eretz Yisrael, especially the practice is that they keep the Gra, that Seyto Kochavim is 18 minutes later, 20 minutes later. And the Gra notes already, and this is noted by some others at that time already, the Uraim notes it a little bit, 
that it has to do with where you are in terms of your latitude on the earth about the duration of the Ben Hashmashot. Right, so very good. So there is speculation that the Rebbeinu Tam Shita and all of the Rishonei Ashkenaz who followed the position of the Rebbeinu Tam were heavily influenced by their latitude. And since their latitude was so far north, for them, the duration of their Ben Hashmashot was larger. And because of that... Right, they they had the sheet of Rabbeinu Tam made sense, but for someone who was in Eretz Yisrael, the sheet of Rabbeinu Tam makes no sense. The problem with that thesis is that the Ramban is one of the adamant supporters of the Rabbeinu Tam. The Ramban lives in Spain, and he is almost on the same latitude as Eretz Yisrael on Earth, and he's a huge supporter of the Rabbeinu Tam. So that undermines that thesis or that theory that it was all based on the fact that they were so far north that they believed in the Rabbeinu Tam. But it's clear that that is true. Those that speculate that it has to do with further north. So they want to suggest that the Rabbeinu Tam Shita has to then be adjusted when you're in other places. And that might have a lot of impact. It already starts to come up and then was discussed over and over again about this idea of the fact that Benesh Meshot actually changes depending on your latitude. And because of that, the question of Sak comes up in this way. You can pass them like the Grah and just say that Shkia and then Benesh Meshot. The Grah already recognizes that there's a difference in your location. The Grah is pretty far north. And he says that when we determine the Benesh Meshot, it depends on where you are. That has to do with the time of the year and your latitude. And so the Grah already recognizes that there's a difference. And the Grah sets his time based on where he is, recognizing that in other latitudes, the time would be different. That's why there are so many Shitot in the Grah. It goes from like 18 minutes to 24 minutes, because it depends on how you gauge the latitude. So you have to determine, first of all, who do you pass on, like Grah, the Tam, so on and so forth. The second thing you need to do is, once you pass on like any of those Shitot, how do you calculate the Shita? So for the Rebbeinu Tam, there are two ways to calculate it. There's the fixed 72 minutes Rebbeinu Tam based on his Shita here. But the truth is that the Rebbeinu Tam Shita with 72 minutes really does not make sense in Eretz Yisrael. It's clear that 72 minutes after Shkia in Eretz Yisrael, I mean, you're way into Tzayto Kochavim. You're not even close. Whereas, further north, if you were in latitudes of much further north, 72 minutes might be a good gauge. So the question of why they went to a fixed time might be, they went to a fixed time because they wanted to incorporate everything. Problem with something with saying that is that the Rebbeinu Tam is commenting on the Gemara. The Gemara is in Bavel, which isn't as far north as the Rebbeinu Tam, and the sheet of 72 minutes comes out of the Gemara. So are they giving a standard for everybody, and that covers everybody, that's the longest it could be, and that covers everything? Right, it's a low plug, or maybe we should change it based on where you are. And so that comes up with what they call the Rebbeinu Tam, based on your latitude. You can alter the Rebbeinu Tam, which will change based on where you are and where your latitude is. And then it comes back to what I discussed before, that even though the Rebbeinu Tam Shita is Mufrach because of his reality, there's no Kippah, the sun doesn't go through the Kippah, the truth is that we have the same phenomenon today. And that phenomenon has to do with the way the sun sets and the horizon. That's the atmosphere. The atmosphere reflects the light of the sun, as long as the sun has a direct line to the atmosphere. As long as the sun can see the atmosphere directly in a straight line, it will keep light in the horizon. So what ends up happening is the sun sets, when we're in a, I mean technically the sun doesn't set, we're moving, not the sun. But I'm just for sake of understanding, I'm going to say that the sun is moving, not us. So when the sun goes over the horizon, there's still light in the sky, because in terms of the ball of the earth, the sun hasn't reached a point where it no longer has a direct line to our atmosphere. It will, at some point, get far enough along where it has no direct line to the atmosphere, there'll be no more light. That is equal everywhere in the Earth. Everywhere on the Earth, that distance between the time the sun's setting and the, where it can shed light on the atmosphere, it's 18 degrees, or it's 2,003 kilometers. It's a strip, basically, you can make it. It's a strip of distance, 
that encompasses or covers these 18 degrees. So once the sun moves beyond 18 degrees, there's no more light in the atmosphere because there's no direct light. Now, what ends up happening is because the earth is not sitting straight on its axis. as she sits on an angle on its axis. So because of that, where that line is or where it happens differs depending where you are. I mean, it depends on summer or winter. And that line at the 66 and a half degree angle on the earth, because the earth isn't straight, that's where that line sits no matter what. But, for instance, when it comes to the summertime, when the northern hemisphere that the sun's here, the entire north pole is beyond this line. That's why the sun doesn't set in the north pole, or it never has this dust, this period of where the sun leaves the horizon. And when you go to the wintertime, it's the opposite way around. Because of the angle of the earth, and where this is set on the earth, and where the sun is relative to the earth, then it ends up that the entire north pole is covered by darkness and never crosses the line on the other side. So because of this, what ends up happening is in different latitudes, because the angle that you're on also determines how far in the sky or the sun can reach you. So even though 18 degrees is the last point at which the sun will cast light on the atmosphere, depending where you are, meaning how far north you are or how far south you are, will determine what you can see of those 18 degrees. And that's why it'll be longer or shorter your Benash Mashot whether it's the summer or the winter, even though, in terms of the physics, it's always the same 18 degrees. So north and south will determine the length of the Benesh Mashot, as well as the amount of time that you can still see light in the horizon. And so because of that, even if you paskin like the Rebbeinu Tam, or even if you paskin like the Gra, you have to do a second calculation possibly, which is to determine when you paskin like them, What's the reality of that? How far north are you? How far are you in Eretz Yisrael? Maybe you could pass kind of like Rebbeinu Tam in Eretz Yisrael, but you would have to adjust the Rebbeinu Tam for the latitude of Eretz Yisrael versus the latitude of where the Rebbeinu Tam lived in northern France. And once you do that, it would reduce the Rebbeinu Tam to probably a much more reasonable, like 48 minutes, 50 minutes, which would be a much more reasonable number within Eretz Yisrael. The same is true of the Gra. has to adjust. That's why the Gra has a roughly, you know, 18 to 24 minutes, because it might have to do with where you are latitude-wise. The Graal, when he says that his number of the three-quarter meal, question where that's located. Is that only in Eretz Yisrael? That means when you're in Chutz Laaretz, when your place is at latitudes are further north, maybe you have to extend that duration of the Graal. Right? I'm just bringing it up here because this is the sugya. This is where the Rebbeinu Tam knows the stira and creates the sugya. But you have all these different shitot. And then within, the, even after you have those shitot, you have to determine how to calculate which one you want based on your latitude or whether that makes a difference. And there are some that believe that you ignore the latitudes. And the number is given for whether it be no time is, and that incorporates everybody, the low plug type of argument. Or do we actually adjust it based on your latitude? You can't have a fixed time when Shabbat goes out. Now, obviously, that's difficult. That makes it hard. We don't want to start adjusting these things because it's very hard for people, especially before the modern calendar, it's very hard for people to calculate these numbers. So they just said 72 minutes, 42 minutes. They just give you times that are fixed and everybody can use them. And that way it'll be equal for everyone. So again, these are the issues about today, about how we paskin. Again, we generally follow the gra here in Eretz Yisrael, which means that Shkia is the end of the day. And then Tzaytuk Chavim, we wait. Most people will daven after, for Kriyat Shema, 24 minutes or so. They'll daven Kriyat Shema. The only time we have an exception for that is on Motzei Shabbat, where they wait a little longer. They wait 34, 36 minutes for other considerations to make it sure that they're really past the Seitako Chavim. All right, so now the Gemara said here at the top of Lamed Heyom and Aleph that that machlok between Rabbah and Rav Yosef was true in Shabbat, where Rabbah has a longer time and Rav Yosef has a shorter time. 
But the opposite is true by Kaveret. That in Kaveret, their shitot are reversed, where Rab is going to have a smaller shiur, and Rabbi Yosef is going to have a bigger shiur. Kaveret here, or this din of Kaveret, we've mentioned it before, it's basically a cylinder of sort. A Kaveret's also a beehive. Cylinder of sort that's made out, we're going to see in a second, a Mishnah from Kelim and Oalot, that they're made out of Kanim, or made out of Kash, made out of straw, or made out of reeds. And they can also make it out of wood which would be the equivalent of a bucket. The opposite is true by a chalta, which Rashi translates as a keveret. If you have a chalta that can hold two kur, you're allowed to carry it on Shabbat, because it still is a kli, still a utensil that can be used on Shabbat. But latte kure, asur letultula. It has three kur, if it holds three kur, and it's too heavy now. It's no longer considered to be a kli, a utensil, and you can't carry it on Shabbat because it's almost as if it's a fixed in place. It's so heavy that you don't normally carry it. Since you don't normally carry it, it's not something that you would consider to move on Shabbat. It never becomes muksa because it's designated to its place. Yosef Amar, bat shari. Three kur, you're also allowed to carry it. But arba akure osur. Four kur, you're not allowed to carry it. So you see here, Rabbi Yosef's shira is big, whereas Rabba's is smaller. So that's what the Gemara meant, bechilufa. Nothing to do with the exact shiurim. Just saying that by Venash Mashot, Rabba has the bigger shiur. By Kaveret, Rabba has the smaller shiur. Amar Abai, by Minei Demar. Bai says that I posed this question to Mar. Mar being his Rebbe, Rabba. So Bai posed this question to Rabba. Bishat Maaseh. In a time that I was actually wanted to do it. It was Allah Maaseh. Even an item that had two kur in it, he did not permit me to carry. Come on. Because both Rabbi Yosef and Rabba both said that two kur was alright to carry. So now at two kur, Rabba's saying to him, don't do it. So who's that like? It's like this Kahai Ditznan. It's like this Mishnah that we found in Kilim and Olot. Kaverta kash, kaverta kanim, whether it's made out of this kaverta is made out of straw, it's made out of reeds, ubor alexandrite, or the water cistern in an Alexandrian boat. If they went on the water for longer durations of time, they didn't have any drinking water because it's obviously salt water out there, they needed a water cistern on the boat. So this water cistern was made out of this kaverta, again the equivalent of what we'd call a bucket. It had a wooden uh, staves around it, and they tied them together and had a, had a floor to it, and they put the water in there to store the water on the boat. If they have a base, the AFLP is knocked out, it's not in the Mishnah. You can see that here, the Girsa, the Gra takes out the word AFLP. They hold 40 sa'a in liquids, which is the equivalent to two kur, when in dry goods, tehorim. They are considered to be tahor. There's a basic principle, again, I mentioned this before, that the Gemara, when it has to determine things about Shabbat, has to look for paradigms somewhere else. We want to know on Shabbat if something's considered to be a kli. Is it a utensil or not a utensil? How do I know? Shabbat doesn't give me a definition of utensils. So what do I do? I have to go somewhere else. Usually the somewhere else is Tumah. By Tumah and Tara, Kelim can accept Tumah. Items that are affixed to the ground generally do not accept Tumah vitara. So the difference between something being a utensil and not being a utensil is whether it's carried normally or not. And that's what this mission is discussing. If the item is so big that when it's filled, people cannot carry it, that is not considered to be a keli anymore. Keli is only something that can be nitao meleverikan, full and empty. It's based on the juxtaposition of sukim to the word sak. Just like a sack can be carried when it's full and empty, so too any keli that's found has the ability to carry it whether it's full or empty. So over here, the Gemara is giving you that threshold. What is the threshold? 
That if you have a Kverta Kash, Kverta Kanim, a Borsvinal Xantrit, Sheishlem Shulayim, Beim Achzikon, Mem Sa'ab Alach. They hold 40 Sa'ab liquids, or Purayim Biyavesh, or two core in dry goods, Tehorim. Why are they Tehor? Because they're no longer a Kli. They don't have a classification of a Kli. If they don't have a classification of Kli in Tuma and Tara, that's what we're looking for, a definition of a Kli. If it's not defined as a Kli, then a Shabbat you can't carry it. Here we see the threshold is Tukur, Kurayim. And that is what Rabbah was saying to Abaye. Rabbi, when he asked him, can I move this because it's machzik two core, he didn't let him do it because of this Mishnah. Once you hit two core, that's not considered to be a kli and tuma. It's not considered to be a kli and tuma, you can't carry it on Shabbat. Now, why is there a difference between liquids and dry goods? A core is equal to 30 sa'a. A core is equal to 30 sa'a, so a kurayim, two core would be 60 sa'a. So that means that in liquids, you would have 40 sa'a, in dry goods, you would have 60 sa'a. The difference between them, and that's what Abai is about to say here, is I'm Rabbi Yishmamina, Hai The ability to pile on the top, above the surface of the Kli, in dry goods, adds on an additional third to the capacity. So for instance, liquids, if you pour them to the top or the brim, they have a little bit of surface tension, but after that they start to overflow. So you're limited by the Kli itself. On the other hand, by dry goods, you can stack on top, even after you've gone above the brim of the clue, you keep stacking it up towards the middle, and you have a pile on top. How much is that pile equal to? Abai says it's a third. How do I know that? Because the Mishnah says, liquids, it's 40 sa'ah. Dry goods, 60 sa'ah. So the additional 20 sa'ah that you're adding on top, which is what we call a third milibar, right? one third milibar, which is equivalent to a half Milagav, what we would call 50% today. You have an increase of 50% of the capacity when you stack on top, when the dry goods can sit on top of the brim. Now obviously it has to do with the dimensions or the way that the kli is made, and Rashi points out that their kilim were like the yam of Shlomo, which are wide. That their height was equal to their radius, which makes them very low and wide kilim. And because of that, you have a lot of surface area to put the dry goods on top of it. So obviously the capacity would change depending on the dimensions of the Kli. So Rashi tells us the dimensions here that the height equal to the radius, that gives you a lot of width in the Kli, and that's why the top, the dry goods on top, can stack on top. And that's what Abayi says, Shvamina ha'igudsha tilta havi. Abayi chazi l'rovo, gadave l'marav. So Abayi saw that Rovo was peering or looking out to the western side to determine when it was nightfall. So Amalei v'atanya kozman shipnei mizrach madimim. Didn't we say in yesterday's daf that the determination of what the light in the sky is, as long as the eastern side is still light? Why are you looking in the west? It's obviously why Rav is looking in the west. Rav is looking in the west because it's where the sun sets. But he says, then wait a minute, the Brayta told us that it's talking about the east is where you have to look for the light. He says, no, 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 you think it means literally the eastern side? Oh, panim hamadimim et mizrach. It's not literally the eastern side, but rather the side that causes light to be on the eastern side. What's that? That's the western side. Because we know the sun sets on the west, and the sun setting on the west is what puts the light into the eastern side. So it's not literally the eastern side that you need to look at. You need to look at the western side, which is the source of the light for the eastern side. So the case is the opposite now, where Rava sees Abaye looking into the east. So Amrlei Misavad Mizrach Mamash. What do you think? It means the eastern side, literally. Face that lights the Mizrach, which means the western side. So either the case was, Rubble was looking to the west, and Abai is questioning him, and then Rubble explains that it's really west, not east. 
Or it was Abayi was looking to the east and Abba was correcting him and saying, don't look east, look west. The Simanech, and this is why it was important what we were discussing before, Kavto. The Siman is Kavto, which means Chalon, the window. Simanech Kavta, Chalon, which is that when the sun leaves the horizon, it goes through the Chalon, which is we described before, that reality of what they think happened with the sun. And so because of that, if you look in the two Rashi's before that, he says, L'Erev, Chama Shukat B'marav, that it goes, sets in the west, Zureya Chama Madimim Et HaMizrach. And the rays of the sun light up the east. Kechalom, like a window. When it enters into the window, the light that is cast from the window shines on the opposite wall or the opposite side. What Rashi is basically describing here is that the reality that I described to you for the Rebbeinu Tam is that when the sun leaves the horizon, it's entering through a window of the kippah to pass through the dome. And when it enters into that window, it shines across to the opposite side on the eastern side, and that's what Rashi is describing over here. Again, the same uh, reality that the Rabbeinu Tam thought, the Rashi is using that same idea of the kippah being a dome, and the sun is penetrating through the dome to return to the other side. So when it enters into the chalon, then the light is cast on the other side. And that's the hint here, that the sun sets on the west. It's entering the western chalon, but it casts light on the eastern side. And that's what it means, that it's the light that's cast from the west onto the eastern side, but you should be looking west to determine when the light leaves the Horizon. Alright, so now the Gemara continues. Rabbi Nechemi Omer, Yedei she'alech adam mishetishkach hamach hatzimil. Rabbi Nechemi believed that the duration of the Nishmashot was half a meal, the amount of time that you could walk half a meal. I'm Rabbi Chanina. Arotzei leda shiro shal Rabbi Nechemi. How do you determine what the shiro of Rabbi Nechemi is? Yaniach hama berosh hakarmel. When he's standing on the top of the Carmel mountain, where the Carmel spa, period, vidbol bayam, he should go down the mountain, vidbol bayam, and then take a dip in the ocean below, and then come back up. That is the shiur of Rabbi Nechemia. So the matter of time will take you to be at the top of the Carmel when you can still see the sun. You're high up, so you can see the sun still. You'll descend down to the ocean, go to the mikveh, and then come out. According to Rashi, by the time you come out, it's over. Come out, that's the end of Benesh Mashot. That's what Rashi says. By the time he comes out, it's already nighttime. Tosafot objects to that because he says it sounds like from this that this would be a kosher tevila. So basically what he says is that you come out of the ocean, that's the sunset, and then by the time you walk back or you return or you get out, then that'll be the end of the chatzimil, that'll be the end of the tzaytokokhavim, in order that the tevila be kosher. The only way for the tevila to be kosher is if you go to the mikvah while it's still daytime, and the sun sets after you come out of the mikveh. According to Rashi, the sun already sets, and then that's the end of Benesh Mashot when you're coming out of the mikveh. So that's a little nuance or difference between them. Alright, so then the Gemara continues, Amar Abichia, Rotele wrote, Be'erashu Miriam. Anyone wants to see the Be'er of Miriam, Be'er of Miriam was the water source that traveled with B'nai Yisrael on the Midbar, B'schut Miriam. Yaleh the Rosh Carmel. you should go up to the top of Carmel, V'yitzpeh, and then look out. You'll see some sort of item that looks like a sieve, Bayam in the middle of the ocean. That's where Hashem put it, that's where it's in Gniza. A Mayan, a spring that moves around, that travels with you, that is Tahor. And what's the definition of a Mayan that travels with you? That's Be'erashu Miriam. It's not a really a practical halacha. only happened with the Jews in the Midbar. But that's considered to be a Mayan that you can go to the Mikveh in and you'd be Tahor. Even though it's moving. It's not a fixed mayan, it's not a fixed spring, but that's a spring that moves around. So if you want to see this, what looks like the Be'erashu Miriam, you go up to the Carmel and look out onto the ocean. Amar Rav Yehuda Ben Ashmashot de Rav Yehuda. 
Rabbi Yehuda says, the Benesh Meshur Rabbi Yehuda, which we said before is, Machlok between Rab and Rabbi Yosef, as to whether that's three quarters of a meal or half a meal. That Benesh Meshur Rabbi Yehuda, Kornim Toblin Bo. Kornim go to the mikvah in it. Kornim says, Laman. According to who? Elam and the Rabbi Yehuda, the Rabbi Yehuda himself, Sveikuhu. That can't be. The Kornim can't go to the mikvah. Kornim have to go to the mikvah before sunset. According to Rabbi Yehuda, that time period of Benesh Meshur is a Safeg. You can't go to the mikvah anymore. That you're not certain then that you've gone to the mikvah during the day. Ella. Benesh Mashot Rabbi Yehuda, the Rabbi Yossi, Kohanim Tovlim Bo. Benesh Mashot of Rabbi Yehuda, for Rabbi Yossi is still daytime. Mara says, Pshita, of course. We just saw before that Rabbi Yossi's Shita is that Benesh Mashot is Keherifayim. It's like the blink of an eye. So, of course, you can go to the mikveh during the time of Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yossi has a time period of Benesh Mashot that is minuscule. So, of course, you can go to the mikveh, it's still daytime. The Gemara says, no. You would have thought, when is that threshold of Rabbi Yossi? All Rabbi Yossi says that it's Keherifayim, it's a blink of an eye. But when is that blink of an eye? We don't know when he thinks that threshold is. We would have thought that maybe it's in the middle of Rabbi Yehuda's Benesh Meshot. The answer of the Gemara is no. That Rabbi Yossi's Benesh Meshot threshold only happens after the completion of Rabbi Yehuda's Benesh Meshot. So that means after three quarters of a meal or half a meal, once Rabbi Yehuda's benishment is over, that's when the threshold of Rabbi Yossi is. So it's not incorporated in Rabbi Yehuda at all. Kamash Malon, the Shalom benishment of Rabbi Yehuda, Vadar Matkil benishment of Rabbi Yossi. Benishment of Rabbi Yehuda ends, and then only then is the benishment of Rabbi Yossi. If that's the case, you can go to the mikveh on the benishment of Rabbi Yehuda according to Rabbi Yossi. It's still daytime for Rabbi Yossi. All the way through, what Rabbi Yehuda calls benishment is considered to be absolute daytime for Rabbi Yossi, because Rabbi Yossi only believes the threshold between day and night happens after Rabbi Yehuda. Now, whether it happens immediately after, or maybe sometime after that, that Tosafot discusses, and is unclear about how far afterwards it happens. But we know for sure that if you went to the mikveh during that three-quarter meal or half meal, depending on who, what you think the duration of Rabbi Yehuda is, it's daytime for Rabbi Yossi. And therefore, it works, and it's a good mikveh for the Kohanim, and the sun only sets after that point in time. Amar Rabbi the halacha is like Rabbi Yehuda for Shabbat and like Rabbi Yossi for Truma. Mar says, Bishlama halacha ke Rabbi Yehuda, l'inyan Shabbat l'chumra. Obviously, what we're talking about here in Rabbi Yochan is a safik. He doesn't know who the halacha is like, so we're going to go l'chumra. So I understand by Rabbi Yehuda, you're going to go to l'chumra and you're going to subscribe to Rabbi Yehuda. Well, that's only true on one end of Shabbat. That's on Erev Shabbat. If you subscribe to Rabbi Yehuda on Erev Shabbat, then you go into Chumrah, because then you start your Shabbat earlier. But if you subscribe to Rabbi Yehuda on the Motzei Shabbat, then you'll end up with ending Shabbat earlier. Those will point out that we're only talking about Erev Shabbat here. That we're Choshish for Rabbi Yehuda, and therefore we'll start Shabbat before the Benesh Mashot of Rabbi Yehuda. But obviously on Motzei Shabbat, we will end after Rabbi Yossi's Benesh Mashot. We're going to have to subscribe to Rabbi Yossi. But the Gemara says, What's the Chumrah waiting for Rabbi Yossi by Chumrah? If you say for Tzvila, Tzvekai, that's actually a Kula. You're saying that the Kohanim can go to the Mikveh all the way through the Benesh Meshot of Rabbi Yehuda. That's not the Chumrah, that's a Kula. Saying that they can go to the Mikveh even when it's Benesh Meshot of Rabbi Yehuda, that's still a Safeg Zman. Doesn't make sense. Ela Lachilat Truma. It's coming to teach us when you can eat Truma. You can only eat Truma. It's only considered to be nighttime for eating of Truma by the Kohanim after the Benesh Meshot of Rabbi Yossi. That's the later time. That they only eat after the Benesh Meshot of Rabbi Yossi. So basically, you take the Chumrah and Bosh Tzadim, which is we're going to start Shabbat before the Benesh Meshot of Rabbi Yehuda, and we're going to only allow you to eat Truma after the Benesh Meshot of Rabbi Yossi. The same would be true on Motzei Shabbat. And what? If you look in Tosavot, it says, Hiksha Rav Parat, 
You could do the same thing in Shabbat or Truma. You could say, you can only go to the mikveh until the time of Rabbi Yehuda, Benishmash of Rabbi Yehuda. You can only eat the Truma after the Benishmash of Rabbi Yehuda. Shabbat. You have to start Shabbat before the Benishmash of Rabbi Yehuda. You can only end Shabbat after the Benishmash of Rabbi Yehuda. You could have said it even in Shabbat or in mikveh. The answer is, near the read, the Nechel Hashmin and Rabuta. The Chirish is, Afilub Shabbat, Chamir, Mekel, Rabbi Yehuda. That even in Shabbat, where we're choshesh for the sheet of Rabbi Yehuda, there Rabbi Yossi is making and says you don't have to start Shabbat until later. To say that their opinions hold throughout the spectrum of Allah. Not just in Shabbat, not just in Shumat, it's everywhere. We who don't know who to Paschal like, we go to Safek and therefore we're going to be on both studying. We're going to say start Shabbat early, end it late, go to the mikveh early, only eat Shumat late, because we're being choshesh for both of them. Now we enter into the world of the Amoraim. And the Omaraim now changed the whole Lashon to something that we know today, which is, Amr Yehuda Mishmal, Kuchav Echad Yom. One star, that's daytime. Shnaim, two stars, is Benesh Mashot. Shlosha, three stars, that's night. So that's the famous idea that when you see three stars in the sky, that's considered to be nighttime. That's Tzayda Kuchavim. Tanya Nami Ochi, the brighter that supports that, Kuchav Echad Yom. Shnaim, Benesh Mashot. Shlosha, Laila. So now, Amar Rabbi Yossi. Right, they may have big stars that you can see during the daytime. We're not talking about small stars that you can only see at night. We're talking about these middle-sized stars. Problem is, when is that determined by? One star during the day. Wait, is that what determines what's considered a big star? When you see the three stars at night, and it's completely night, you can see the little stars, that's what determines little. Then when is Benoni determined by? How do we determine when it's considered to be a middle-sized star? Somewhat difficult because he has three periods of time here. It's Yom, Benesh Meshot, and Laila. At which period of time are we talking about these Benonim, that they're visible? When are they visible, these Benonim? So that's somewhat difficult in this Shito. What seems to be coming out here, the change in the definition, which is that until now the Tanaim talked about either distance as being the determination of when Benesh Meshot was, or they used the sky, meaning that how much light was left in the sky. Over here we all of a sudden start talking about stars. Stars become the determining factor. And what's interesting here is that you can really understand, based on the creation in Tashat Breshit, what it's speaking about. It says that the Shemesh is the Mshelet Bayom. The sun rules during the daytime. It says that the Ereach Bekochavim, they rule during the night. So we know when the sun is out, that's called daytime. When the Kochavim are out, when the stars are out, that's called nighttime. So that's what we know. That's daytime is sun, nighttime is stars. The problem is that there's a period of time where they both rule. That the sun is still there, and the stars are also there. Or the moon is also there. You have a period of time where there's overlap. And that's what the problem is here. The problem of Benesh is that you have a period of time when both the sun and the moon and the stars are visible. Or the light of the sun is still visible, but the stars are already coming out. And then during that overlap, that's the question. When does the rule of the sun end, and the rule of the stars and the moon begin? Because of that period of time that's the overlap, that's what we're trying to determine over here. And so here, Amr Shmuel says, it's the stars that determine. As long as the stars aren't there, that's the rulership of the sun. Once the stars come out, that's already considered to be the nighttime. So stars are the determining factor, and that's nighttime. As long as it's not stars, it's not nighttime, that means it's part of purview of the day. Right, so that's clear, the problem, that the inexactitude of what they did, and there's a claim, I can't remember, 1800s, somebody wrote basically that, that they, they couldn't come up with exact times. This person goes, sets out to do measurements of Rebbeinu Tam, and he come, can't come out to 72 minutes. And he says part of that's based on the clock problem, that they didn't have the clocks or the determination based on clocks, and therefore they couldn't calculate it properly. 
And 72 minutes is actually, even though the Rabbeinu Tam is a mistake, because even where the Rabbeinu Tam lived, you can't get to 72 minutes. There is a factor here, and that's why they're using other items. They're using constellations, things that were available to them to determine about clock. Kumar's going to ask in one second your question, what happens if it's a cloudy day? That's the biggest problem. Cloudy days for them was everything. All these markings, except for the distance ones, are determined by being able to look in the sky, see light, see stars. What happens when it's a cloudy day? So, Amar Someone who does Malacha over two twilights, meaning twilight going into Shabbat, the twilight going out of Shabbat, Chayav Chatat Mimonavshach. He's definitely Chayav Chatat. Because either it's day or it's night. And if he did it both going into Shabbat and after Shabbat, he was definitely on Shabbat in one of them. Right? So this really goes together with Rashi's Shita, that Benesh Meshot is either day or night. It could be either one. And even Rashi has that interesting Shita, the same time in Benesh Meshot, and one day could be day and one could be night. We saw that yesterday. There is a third Shita in Benesh Meshot, which is, the Benesh Meshot is neither night nor day. It's a birya bifnei It's yom vilayla, day and night. It's not day, it's not night, it's day-night. It's a combination of both of them. And according to that, it would make it more difficult, this idea that you could be chayav chatat if you were overlapping in both periods, because there might be a period of time which is neither day nor night. It could be then that it still has shaykhut to Shabbat, so on and so forth. But at least the Bishonim here, Rashi and Tosfot, seem to say that it's clearly either yom or laila. There are other Rishonim who want to suggest that there is this twilight, real twilight, which is that it's not day, not night. And it's a combination of both of them. Your question. You can't do all these calculations, the Rabbanan. When the sun reaches the tops of the trees, light the candles. What about a cloudy day? Now it's a cloudy day, he doesn't know when the sun's at the top of the trees. Again, this is the Uram Shita, that the idea that sunset being at the top of the trees... Right, that's based on this Gemara over here. That at the tops of the trees, there's another Gemara later on that they used to bring in Shabbat when the sun hit the tops of the trees. So then, my, what do you do? Bamato in the city, Chaze Tarnagola. Look at the chickens when they go up to roost. Bedabra, if you're out in the field, look for the orb of the ravens. When they go to roost, that's already nighttime. So as they're ascending to roost, that's the time that you should light the candles. Inami Adaane. This is Aaron, which is a type of grass that moves with the sun. Wherever the sun is, the grass moves. So in the middle of the day, it's upright. In the morning, it faces towards the east. And at nighttime, it faces towards the west. So when the grass or this plant, whatever it is, is tilted all the way to the west, then you know that it's time to light the candles. Right. You blow six tkiot on Erev Shabbat. Rishonah, the first tkiah, is It's to stop the people doing work out in the fields. Shniah. The second one is Avtil Ir Bechaniyot. Still the people in the city to cease from doing work. Shlishit Badlik Aner. The third one is to light the candle. Divrei Rabbi Natan. That's the position of Rabbi Natan that these are the three tkiot that are blown. Rabbi Yehuda and the Siomer. Shlishit Lachlotu Tfilin. The third one is to take off your tfilin. You're not allowed to wear a tfilin on Shabbat. So you have to remove the tfilin prior to Shabbat. So you're close to the tfilin. Vishoheh Kedei Tzliyat Dag Katan. Then you have to wait the amount of time it takes to roast a small fish, or to put up the bread dough into the oven on the walls of the oven. That's how they baked it. And obviously, that its crust will come on before Shabbat, which we saw in the first parak. That's the amount of time you need that to get that far along before you can leave it going into the Shabbat. And then they blow the shofar, they blow it, and that's Shabbat. So the six kiyot here, you have 
Tkiah Rishonah, Shniah Shlishit, and then you have the latter three, which is Tkiah Shuat Tkiah, that gets you the six. The Rambam reads this literally, that there are three Tkiot, and then the last series is Tkiah Shuat Tkiah. Rashi over here says that all the series here are Tkiah Shuat Tkiah, which means the first three are Tkiah Shuat Tkiah. Not Tkiah, 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 three in a row, even that's what it sounds like in the Gemara, it sounds like this further on. He says it's Tkiah, Shuat, then Tkiah, and then the last series together in one shot, you blow Tkiah, Shuat, Tkiah. The Rambam, on the other hand, believes that the first three are actually Tkiot, and only the last series is Tkiah, Shuat, Tkiah. That's a, a difference in their opinion about exactly how this is blown. Now this is important, because if you actually go today to the corner wall, the corner wall between the southern and western walls of the Kotel, the Kotel is the Kotel Amaravi, you go to where the southern excavations are today, the Davidson Center, on the southern wall, there's a corner there. There's a stone that's on the floor there that fell from above. On it, that stone is written that that was the Makom Hatokeya of the one who blew the trumpet on Erev Shabbat. The city in that time was the upper city, was out to the southwest, where the Jewish quarter is today. That's where the old city was. He used to go up on the roof by the Mikdash. From that corner, he would blow the shofar for exactly this, the Sheish Tkiot. What's mentioned here is the practice, and they have a stone that has written at the Tokeya. So if you go over there, you can look for that stone. You can look for the writing there, that that's where they blew the shofar for exactly what's described here, to have the Am seize from Milacha. Now that's the idea of the siren that goes off. That's the comes from this, right? Amar Rabbi Shemim Gamliel, Manasim Labavliim. What are we going to do with the Babylonians? At this last part of the series, they blow a Tukiyan and a Tshubah, and then they stop doing work. If they're going to seize from Malacha at the end of Mariim, then it's Tukim Mariim, Havalu Chamisha, you only have five blasts here. Ela Tukim, Vechosrim Tukim Umeriim, Tuch Meriyan. They blow Tukiyat, Tukiyat, Tshubah, and then they stop the Malacha. So the Tshubah is the sign of the Malacha. Then they stop the Malacha and the Meriyan, Minhagavotayim Biyadayim. We can't stop them. That... It's not the right way to do it. They should do tkiyat shuat tkiyat. Instead, they do tkiyat tkiyat shuat. But that's their minhog, and we're not going to stop them from doing that. Matni lei rav yudu le rav yitzuk brei shnia nhadlik neet aner. The second blast tells you to light the candles. Come on, who's that like? Lok rabbi natan, velok rabbi yudu nasi. It's not like Rabbi Natan, who says lighting the candles is the third blast. Right? And velok rabbi yudu nasi. He has the third one for moving tefillin, which sounds like he lights the candles. After that, in the last series, or right after he puts everything out, takes care of the last things, and then he lights the candles. So it can't be that second one. Who's that light? Come on, look, Rabbi Nathan, look, Rabbi Yudan Asi, Elish Lishit, Third one to light the candles. Come on, that's like Rabbi Nathan. So it must be that second one's not right. It means the third one. And who says to light the candles on the third blast? That is Rabbi Nathan. Tana the Bay Rabbi Shmuel. Sheish Tkiot Tokim Erev Shabbat. There's six blasts that you blow on Erev Shabbat. You blow the first blast. Workers in the field stopped hoeing, plowing, doing any work. And then they come in from the fields. Those that are in the city cannot go back home yet. Until those that are in the field come in, and then everybody enters together. The reason for that is that because if later on somebody comes in, they don't know if he was working in the field or in the city, and they think he worked past the time that he was supposed to work. So if they all come in together, then there's no chashash here. The stores are still open, which you see and the doors or the windows, they used to have the equivalent of what we call shutters. They used to take them off, and then they used to put out their wares on those shutters. At the end of the day, they used to close them up. You know, like they bring down the Trisim today. So they closed them up. The second blast, then they close up shop. 
ועדיין חמים מונחים על גבי קירה, the hot items are still on the stove top, וקדרות מנוחות על גבי הקירה, and the קדרות are also on top of the קירה. התחיל לקראת קיאה שלישית, he blows the third blast, סליק המסלק, then you take whatever is on the fire, you take it off, והתמין המטמין, and then you put into atmano, anything you want to put into atmano, והדליק המדליק, and then you light candles. Then, you wait the amount of time it takes to roast the fish, a little fish, or to put the dough into the oven. And then he blows those last three blasts, and that is Shabbat. That's the beginning of Shabbat. So, If you want to light after the sixth yot, Malik. It's like the 18 minutes today. Shkia is not till 18 minutes later. So candle lighting is 18 minutes, but I know I have 18 minutes left. So so over here, you know that you have an amount of time afterwards, which is from the time that the third blast is given. But, because after he makes those last three blasts, the shofar is muksa, and he has to put it away. So he has to have enough time to get from where he is to home, put the shofar away. So you have an extra time there until shkia. So marlo, imkei natatach ledavach l'shurim. That makes it subjective. How far does he live from here? What's it going to be? People are going to now start play, playing around times. We don't do that. Halach is objective. They have a storage place up there and he puts the shofar into the storage right there. There he places the shofar. Because the shofar and the trumpets on Shabbat because they're musical instruments. Can't carry them on Shabbat so they put them away there. So I'm going to stop here but just want to note here that this happens to have a heavy influence on my loket about when Shabbat starts. When you light the candles for Shabbat, is that the beginning of Shabbat? So the Bahag is the main opinion here about the fact that when you light the candles, the Ran also says the same thing, that when you light the Shabbat candles, that's Shabbat. That's the beginning of Shabbat. Once you've done that, everything is done. You can't do any more malacha. The Ramban is the one who argues on that. The Ramban says no. The lighting of the Shabbat candles is not the beginning of Shabbat. How can he prove it? So he has a number of proofs. One of his proofs is the fact that lighting candles is a malacha. So how can the start of Shabbat be done by doing the malacha itself? How can you start Shabbat with lighting candles? That's number one. Number two is our Gemara over here. Our Gemara over here says that you light the candles in this Tanah Debei Rabbi Shmuel, and then afterwards you have time to roast a little fish and to put dough into the oven. That's what Rashi says. You can still do those items. You can still do that even after you've lit the candles. That shows you that you can do malacha even after you've lit the candles. That's the Ramban's proof to the fact that the lighting of the candles uh, is not the beginning of Shabbat. Lighting candles is the Kvodah Shabbat. Shabbat only starts. I mean, whether you make the, even if you made the bracha, I mean, it sounds like the Ramban, it wouldn't be. According to others, if you make the bracha already, that's the beginning of Shabbat. But the beginning of the candles of Shabbat is Kavod Shabbat. That's not the beginning of Shabbat. Beginning of Shabbat is when you makabel the Shabbat. The Rabbah and the Ran believe, no, lighting of candles, that's the beginning of Shabbat. So how do they answer what the Ramban says? Well, with regards to the Malacha, they say, this is the last Malacha you're doing. You're showing that this is the beginning of Shabbat by doing one more malacha that's for Shabbat. That's the lighting of the candles. That's the final malacha. So that's why it works. They also, what about over here? It says over here that you can do tzliat dag and you can put bread into the oven. Not literally that you can do that, but the amount of time that it takes to do that, that's how long you waited. Not that you should be doing that, but the amount of time, that's how much you have to wait. So it's not literally you're doing the malacha. Their proof is also from here, which is, over here it says that choletz tefillin, and then he lights the candles. Why does he take off his tefillin before he lights the candles? If the lighting the candles wasn't the start of Shabbat, it would be better to light the candles and then take your tefillin off afterwards. 
It must be that the lighting the candles is the beginning of Shabbat, and that's why he has to take off his film before he lights the candles. So both of them bring proofs from this Gemara as to whether lighting the candles is really the beginning of Shabbat or not the beginning of Shabbat. Again, we saw before the machog between the Rambam and Rashi over here as to when the way the blowings work. But it was Tkiyah, Tshuat, Tkiyah, and then Tkiyah, Tshuat, Tkiyah, that's Rashi. But the Rambam, who believes that it was Tkiyah, 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 and then at the end it was Tkiyah, Tshuat, Tkiyah. The Gold Mamoniot brings over there that today we don't have the Tkiyot, that the equivalent for us today is Baruchu. And when you say Baruchu and Shul, that is Kabbalat Shabbat. Obviously that's in their time where they had Baruchu before Shkiyah. Today, that we don't say Baruch away until way after Shkia. Obviously, you're Mechabal Shabbat. You're forced to make Mechabal Shabbat earlier. You know, somewhat of an issue. Their Kabbalah Shabbat was really before Shabbat. And then, they had Baruch even before the onset of Shkia. But Baruch would have the equivalent effect as blowing up the Shofar to stop and Lacha. And therefore, the Allah of the Maisa, what comes out today is, that if you actually are, for instance, passing a minion, or you come late to Shul, and they say Baruch and you say Baruch even though it's not Shabbat yet, you may no longer Davim Mincha. Because you already been Mikabal Shabbat by saying Barchu is equivalent of the blowing of the Shofar, and you can't say Mincha anymore. So if you're going down to the Kotel, where you have many Minyonim going on at the same time, and you're coming to Dab and it's still light up, but there's somebody already davening Marib, and they say Barchu. If you answer to that Barchu, you'd be in a problem where you've already been Mikabal Shabbat, and you can't daven Mincha anymore. So you just have to be careful with these issues in terms of Kabbalat Shabbat. Because once you start Shabbat, obviously you can't do any more Malacha, but you'll also be prevented from davening Mincha anymore. Okay, we'll stop here.